Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. Reformed churches are sometimes accused of being rather stoic in their worship. Some might accuse a Reformed church as a church that quenches the Holy Spirit. Is this claim really fair? Do Reformed people really desire to quench the Holy Spirit? Why do Reformed people have such a high view of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Does the Lord really work through such means? Please join us and be edified as we consider the Lord building His church through His means of grace in our series titled, Why Such Means? Last time we dealt with the issue of whether or not the Lord wants us to be disciples or if His mission It's just to help us. And we saw rather controversial statements that Christ makes, and they are intended to to prod us and to invite us to think and to think about the significance of his mission. Now, Christ is one who is calling disciples. We need to be radically renovated from the core. And so this is where I wanted to move to the logic of if we're those who are called to be radically renovated from the core, how does this renovation happen? In other words, how, how do we know that God's really working and, and, and how does he manifest this? Is there really a power behind the preaching of the gospel? Or are these mere words? Is it merely just another teacher spouting off another lecture and just saying mere words that really don't have any authority or any power beyond the words themselves? Or is there actually something more that's going on. As Reformed uh, people, one of the things in the Reformation, some traditions disagree with this, but I think it's appropriate, that we have the pulpit in the center of the church, and there's a reason for that. We elevate and have a high view of the preaching of the gospel. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we worship the messenger, not the Christ, Uh, but hopefully we understand that our call is to worship the Christ of the gospel. This is also why, as we'll get into this, why generally the pulpits are above the Lord's table, that we don't want to abstract the sacraments from the preaching of the gospel. We see the preaching of the gospel is a primary means that God uses to cultivate life. And so as we say that, how do we know that the preaching of the gospel is so significant? And so as we look at this, I'd like to see first a tragic scene, secondly, the living word, and last, the Lord's definitive proof. And so let's begin with the tragic scene as we consider this scene that Ezekiel sees before him and also really the tragedy of Christ interacting with the teachers of Israel who really should know better. And as we consider this, we, we see what the Belgic Confession wants to drive home in Article 24. And as we take Article 24 and think about this in terms of what Christ says, we find that the Belgic Confession is dealing with the traditional argument that Rome's brought against the Reformation. And that traditional argument is basically, if man is not saved by works, or our works make no contribution to our redemption, well then man's just going to grow lax. He's not going to want to conform to the Lord, he's not going to care about God, and he's just going to live in an unruly manner. So the Belgic Confession wants us to understand this is not true. Uh, This is one of the many things I appreciate about the Belgic. Uh, I do believe it's a a great document going between the Roman Catholic view, the Anabaptist view. 
And the Belgic drives home in terms of sanctification the necessity of true faith. Where it talks about this faith working itself out in love and how there's a, a faith that truly desires to live for Christ. We're, we're not indifferent. Something has changed within us that we desire to put off sin for a particular reason. Uh, the Belgic says that this faith is produced by the hearing of God's word. And so this is where we're, we're understanding the, the strength of this declaration, right? Rome sees the mass, the re-sacrifice of Christ, this experiential thing done before us, and in the celebration of this mass, somehow we become partakers of Christ. And, and that becomes sort of the central piece. And, and, and we need this. Christ needs to continually be re-sacrificed. And for the Reformed, we're saying actually we, we want our affections, our attention, our orientation tuned to our God and our Christ who presides in the glory of heaven. And the thing about the preaching of the gospel and some of the controversies that, that we think about, we have the Donatists, for instance, if you're familiar, or, or if the kids in catechism remember that controversy, there were those who believed that the minister actually made the sacraments effective. So when there were ministers who apostatized uh, from the faith, they wanted people to be rebaptized. And, and the, the point was, no, these are objective things that God has appointed God is pleased to work through these means. Now, obviously, I'm not advocating ministers apostatize from the faith or live as hellions. But the point was that the means of grace is beyond the man who administers them. Uh, this is also when we get into the preaching of the gospel. Uh, there were some of the more extreme pietists who believed that it was actually the minister in his passion and zeal who made the gospel effective in how he presented it. And it's important to understand uh, as Reformed churches, and sometimes, you know, there's rumors uh, with Jonathan Edwards that he preached sort of a monotone manner. Uh, part of the reason was, it's not just that he was boring, but it was his intention that he didn't want to rob God of any of his glory. And so he wanted to make sure that when he delivered the message, it wasn't about him being the centerpiece, but it was about God being the center place. And so when the Belgic Confession drives us home, it wants us to understand that this faith that's produced through the preaching of the gospel is a true living faith where God is pleased to work through this means. Notice what the Belgic says, that through the means of grace or through the preaching of the gospel, that in terms of God's action, he regenerates him and makes him a new man, causing him to live the new life and freeing him from the slavery of sin. How is this true faith produced? This is why I wanted to read the catechism as well. It is through the preaching of the gospel. And so this, this preaching of the gospel, normally we say this is where God is. Exceptions and people will appeal to the exceptions. We think of the thief on the cross. And some of the people who are more extreme in terms of the means of grace will say, oh, well, the thief on the cross probably attended a synagogue service somewhere. And that, that always makes me chuckle when I hear that answer. I think, yeah, a guy who's upon the cross is hanging out in synagogues, you know, on, on the weekend. That's normally what people like that do who are crucified. I mean, it's pretty unlikely that that has happened. But you see, the Lord's free to work as the Lord desires to work. Uh, but normally, we say the Lord works through the means of the preaching of the gospel. And so how does this work? How, how do we know this? Well, this is where I wanted to start 
in John's gospel. And if I ever preach through John's gospel again, I think this week a bit of a light turned on. You think of John 10, think of John 5, and these echoes back to Ezekiel. And I think there's a lot of stuff John's trying to pull from Ezekiel, where I thought was there, but there might be a lot more to mine between John and Ezekiel. So if you're ever doing Bible study, it might be interesting. Read through Ezekiel, read through John's gospel, uh, see if you can make more connections, something I intend to do in the upcoming weeks. But nevertheless, noticing what Christ says in John 5. The context here in John 5 is you have Christ, who clearly in John's gospel is the incarnate word. John makes this explicit. So Christ is the word of God, word incarnate, from all eternity, action of God, confirming the canon of scripture, right? That's the prologue, John 1, 1 through 18, making very clear Christ is the word of God, coming to bring about redemption, confirming the prophetic word. So as Christ enters history, it's important to understand how John sets the context. What's the charge the Pharisees say about Christ that upsets them? He claims God is his father, and he makes himself God. I mean, think about that statement. If Christ is not God, certainly they, they have validity to be offended. I mean, if I stood up here and said, I'm I'm God, I mean, I, I hope you would be radically offended and say, no, uh, this is wrong. And so you can understand that when somebody stands up and says this, I am God, people can say, wait a minute, no, we know where you were born, what, what are you talking about? But Jesus Christ really is God. And so when the Pharisees bring this accusation, they, they should think about the miracles and what Christ has done and what he has said about himself and the testimony associated with him. That this is Christ. And when Christ is speaking of his mission in John 5, he makes this radical statement that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now that's verse 25. He goes on to talk about how there are those in the tombs who will hear the voice of the Son of God and will be raised up. So there's two things Christ is saying. On the one hand, there is going to be a resurrection to life. Uh, they will hear the voice of Christ. I mean, think about that. Dead people hearing the voice of Christ. And then the implication is those who are walking around are those who are dead. And so when Christ says this, he's speaking of the human condition. Apart from the grace of God, apart from regeneration, it's not that we are as good as dead or like dead people or people who are mostly dead. We are truly dead. Uh, we are those who need new life. Now, when you look at John 5, verse 25, and this is where the light came on with John and Ezekiel. When Christ is saying this, what is he appealing to? Well, this isn't Christ just being creative. He's not just making this up uh, just on his own whim. But it seems that he's making a reference back to Ezekiel and his vision. And the Pharisees should, should understand this. He'll go on in John 10, making a reference to Ezekiel 34 with the Good Shepherd narrative. But as Christ makes a reference here, what, what's the vision? It's a valley of dry bones. And it's important, it's not just a valley of bones. It's a valley of dry bones. So this vision, as it's established, 
is that these are bones that have been bleached by the sun. So I, I'm sure around Montana we've seen dead animals, we've seen animal carcasses from hunters where they're left in certain places, maybe in the woods, and you can see the hide, you can see the bones, and you can see some remains. Now, if you come upon a skull of an animal that's sitting on the side of, of a trail or whatever, and that skull is sun-bleached and there's no flesh on it, that skull's been there for a while, right? The, the sun has hammered on it, it's uh, bleached the, the bone on it, uh, there is nothing left in the skull. It is just bone. That's the imagery here. And so we, we can kind of get this image that Ezekiel lays out of what he sees. It's, it's a rather disturbing image, to be honest, to just see this valley filled with bones, uh, sort of making it appear as if some tragic and horrible war has transpired, and there's multiple casualties that are left here to die. Uh, to decompose. And now they have fully decomposed. There is no resuscitation. Uh, these are remains. Uh, maybe out, out of the most respect, one might be inclined to throw dirt over these bones. Uh, but there's no hope of even identifying who's who in terms of this pile. I mean, it is a very, very tragic, dismal scene. And as Ezekiel sees this, the Lord is one who promises and, and encourages him to do something. That he's the one that as he carries out his redemptive purpose, he's the one that's going to open their graves and raise them up. In other words, exactly what Christ has said in John 5, Ezekiel is prophesying that he's going to basically take this mess, and it really is just a, a presentation of a mess of bones, where you, you don't know what connects to what or, or whose bones are whose bones. It's just, it's a pile. And Christ is, is saying you're going to actually take this pile and sort this pile and arrange it and reassemble each individual. I mean, think, think about how long that would take us as human beings to, to try and figure this out and try and figure out which bones match which bones and, and how to even put these together and, and, and trying to get this right and then finding all the bones. But this is what the Lord is promising to do. So, so hopefully we, we understand the, the gravity and majesty of, of this promise that the Lord is going to do this and bring about redemption. So when we hear this promise, we, we have the setting in John 5 uh, where the Pharisees, teachers of Israel, are upset that Christ makes himself out to be God. He promises a resurrection, seeming to make an echo back to this passage. So, so how is this going to happen? When we hear of this, we can understand why Reformed people would like this text. It makes very clear, man's dead. This is how God finds us, dead, decomposed, without hope. We find that the only hope of life is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. There's nothing else. But also, as we speak and we say, as I've mentioned and made the claim, and our catechism makes a claim, and the Belgic makes a claim, so it's not just me trying to do some job security. This is what the Reformed teach that there is a promise that through the preaching of the gospel, life comes. Pretty radical promise. 
And so when we think about John making this vision of Christ, promising resurrection, promising that the dead will hear. I mean, I think so often as Christians, we, we can read this and not understand the, the absurdity of that statement. If somebody's dead, they're not going to hear. They, nothing works. They're dead. But Christ says, the dead will hear my voice. I mean, think about how radically powerful that is. And so when we think about this vision, this valley, verse 1 in Ezekiel 37, as Christ seems to be making an echo back here, we have in verse 1, full of bones. Verse 2, they were very dry. So Ezekiel wants us to understand it's not resuscitation. It's not CPR. It's not someone who's laying there without a heartbeat. Very dry. Verse 11 gives us the commentary in this situation. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. This tells us something about a situation with Israel. And it's a significant situation because as Ezekiel is bringing this prophecy, Israel is in exile. And so as Israel is in exile, this is where they see themselves. We are those who are cut off from God. The promises of God have failed. There's no hope. We're an abandoned people left to die and rot in a valley. That's the picture of what Israel has. A hopeless people. Not going to have any redemption. No blessing. It's done. Notice then in terms of this losing hope, we think of Ezekiel 34 as he's already prophesied about the leaders of, of God's people, the shepherds of God's people, not caring about the sheep, but exploiting the sheep. So we can understand where Israel has some credibility to be upset about this hope or hopeless situation. It doesn't seem like things are going to go very well. And when you hear this, you think back in covenant history of what the Lord said through Moses. Deuteronomy 28, 25 through 26. The promise is that if Israel turns away from the Lord as a national people, the consequence is that their body will be food for birds. They will be destroyed. So this consequence of what Ezekiel sees is seeing a consequence of the ultimate curse in the ancient Near East. That if somebody wants to truly defame you, ruin you, destroy you, then what they would do is, is they would kill you, leave you for dead, and let the, the birds of the air, the, the predators, clean off the, the meat, if you will. And so it, it's intended to show how much they hate you. So when Israel is put in this situation, it's put in a situation of another nation gaining utter dominance over them, of their God not being able to save them and deliver them because they have been left into the hand of that other nation. Left to die, left to be consumed by the birds of prey, and not to have an honorable burial, not to be, have that honorable burial by the priest. They are to be here to be ultimately uh, humbled and show that their situation of being abandoned. As we go on, we think about this and we think about who the Lord is and what he promises. We find that there's even more promises and, and 
promises that, that there's going to be this, this new life, assuring Israel that it's not the scenario that they think. So this valley of dry bones, Israel thinks are in this situation. Ezekiel is now saying, but you're not in that situation. Now, unfortunately, some people say, well, a prophecy like this is just talking about how the Spirit is only working in the New Testament. Spirit doesn't work in the Old Testament. The Spirit's only there given in terms of slight projections showing that the Spirit is poured out. Well, if somebody gives you that form of an argument, you need to just think about some texts in Scripture as well. Think about Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Jeremiah exhorts the people of Israel to circumcise their hearts, right? Sounds a lot like Romans 6. Be tender to the purpose of God. Uh, be tuned into it. So it's not, the Spirit's not there. It's walking in the Spirit. We think about David and his psalm of confession. What does he pray for? Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Right? So David is asking the Spirit not only to, to give him assurance that his, his relationship to, to God is restored, but that the Lord actually would, would remove these sinful desires from him. And that, that David would, would have this new desire, this new bent to truly conform to the Lord. How does that happen? By the Holy Spirit. We think of Isaiah 63.10, of where Israel grieves the Holy Spirit in their actions. So the prophet Isaiah, now these are some examples. You can go through scripture and find more. But you see how the Holy Spirit is operating in the hearts of God's people in the Old Testament. Now the difference I would make between them is it's a spirit of promise, compelling them to look to Christ, point of Hebrews 11. Now we're in a spirit of confirmation where we walk in Christ, assured that Christ has come doing his work. And so the other thing we find also in John's gospel, which I think can revert back to this, and this really clenches the argument for me in terms of the Spirit working in the Old Testament. When Christ lays out the new birth and regeneration and how regeneration comes before one has faith and believes in Christ, Nicodemus is puzzled by this teaching. And what does Christ say to Nicodemus? Yes, this is a new teaching, um, coming up with something radical that's never been there before. No, that's not what Christ says. He says, are you really a teacher of Israel? And, and you don't know this? In other words, Christ is saying, this is what the whole Old Testament taught. And this is a new doctrine for you? Well, what are you guys studying? What, what are you doing is the force of what Christ is saying to Nicodemus. It's, it's a subtle rebuke. Like, come on, Nicodemus. You should know these things. I'm not laying out for you something that's radically different. But Ezekiel 37 now is laying out the point of this. Israel, foreign land. Jeremiah 34, they will become like the animals cut in half, like the calves that have been cut in half. They'll be left for dead. But Ezekiel 37 doesn't promise they will be left for dead. They will have life. And it's not just that the prophet is good at CPR. He's not good at puzzles and able to put these bones together. Because we find ultimately the Lord gives a definitive proof that he's the Lord of life. Because we notice what Ezekiel does in terms of the Lord issuing this proof definitively. Then when we go back to this vision, it's important to remember who Ezekiel is. He's not just a prophet. He's a priest. 
And so you would think as Ezekiel being a priest who also is a prophet by his calling, you would think that the Lord would say to Ezekiel, okay, Ezekiel, this is a vision. We're going to take these bones, we're going to pick them up, and we're going to bring them to the temple. And I want you to put on your priestly vestments, and I want you to make X amount of burnt offerings. And then you're going to see these bones come to life through this visible presentation of this sacrificial system in the temple. But that's not what the Lord says, is it? Ezekiel's a priest. Ezekiel would be within his right to do that. He is a priest. But what does the Lord say to Ezekiel? He doesn't say, gather the bulls. He doesn't say, be prepared for the burnt offerings. He gives these glorious statement. O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Let that resonate. Because this harks back to the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Right? The Lord is one. The Lord is a first in priority. The Lord is the one who is your God, who is faithful to his promises. And so here it is. Hear the word of the Lord. Now think about how absurd this is. Shouldn't he try and assemble some bones? Shouldn't he try and arrange the bones in a certain pattern? Shouldn't he offer a sacrifice? Because bones are not going to hear the word of God. They are dead They are bleached by the sun. But as they hear the word of the Lord, you have Ezekiel standing over these bones, hearing the word of the Lord, prophesying what the Lord says, speaking the word of God. And as he prophesies, what happens? He hears a rattling. The bones come together and begin to assemble. And they're not assembled in some demented way. But they are those who are assembled in a way where you see actual human beings standing before him, as he mentions, as a great army. Think about this picture. Israel called to be the army of God, going into the land, securing holy war in its unique place. Here they are fallen by a foreign nation, left to be devoured by the birds of the air and the animals of prey. And now once again, they stand tall and the power of the word of the Lord. But there's a problem. Then as these bones are assembled together, there is no spirit, there is no breath of life. So notice the beauty of this. That it's not now get the sacrifice, lead these strange things that are kind of resembling humans to the temple. No, it's once again prophesy, speak more, bring the word of the Lord and pray and and speak that the Ruach, the breath of life, would return to man. It's important in the Hebrew language, there's one word for breath and spirit. So when he's prophesying the breath of life, this isn't just breath in the sense that man becomes a living being, but it's the breath of life of true regenerative act of God where, where the true spirit of God dwells within man. The picture here is a picture along the lines of Genesis 2, verse 7. After the Lord makes a mud pie in the dirt, he breathes the breath of life personally in man. We cannot forget the contrast that the Apostle Paul makes. And it's an important contrast that Ezekiel here is prophesying. And the contrast is where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, And he became a living being, right? He's citing Genesis 2, verse 7. So there it's, man has breath, 
but he doesn't really have the spirit of life in a confirming sense. In other words, resurrection life. And that's where you have the contrast in the second part of the statement in 1 Corinthians 15.45, that it's Christ Jesus and his resurrection becomes a life-giving spirit, confirming John 5, confirming Ezekiel 37, that the point is through the preaching of the gospel, as this word of life goes forth and individuals hear this word and by the grace of God, the spirit works and they respond in faith, they don't just have the breath of life in the sense that they're animated and they can walk and they can move around, but they have the life-giving spirit of Jesus Christ within them. God is pleased to work and confer this new life upon his people. So as Ezekiel then sees these bones coming together and you have the commentary, basically you have the vision verses 1 through 10, you have the commentary 11 through 14. The Lord wants Ezekiel and us to understand in verse 13 why this proves a point. And, they, and you will, shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise up your graves, O oh, my people. And I will put my spirit within you. In other words, the very fact we respond to the preaching of the gospel testifies to the resurrection power of Christ. Because we are like the dry bones, dead, no life, bleached by the sun, having nothing. But by the grace of God through the preaching of the gospel, as the spirit works and the life-giving spirit goes forth, we have the true life from the life-giving spirit that is given by Christ himself. And so the Lord proves who he is, that the preaching of the gospel accomplishes its effect, and that life comes to a dead people who do not naturally and desire to respond to this message. And so then why is the word of God so significant? Why is the preaching the gospel so powerful? Well, I think it's important to note Ezekiel, the priest, who can lead these corpses that are now standing before him to the temple to offer sacrifices and engage in those sorts of things and, and show this, this visible way of having life would bring life. But that's not what the Lord commands. He commands him to preach to bring the gospel, to speak the word of God. And as a prophet preaches the word of God, life comes to pass. You see life standing before him, that what was a dead, defeated people becomes an army empowered by the Lord's spirit seeking to do the Lord's purpose. So let us not minimize the significance of the means of grace, that the Lord chooses to use. There's no doubt Ezekiel himself may wonder what is preaching going to do to dead bones. But it makes a point, doesn't it? Apart from the grace of God, we have nothing. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, we have nothing. And the Lord continues to cultivate life in us through the means he has ordained. Let us not then trust in the means which we tend to do but let us trust in the God who works through these means 
and confers and gives life and cultivates this life, making us a resurrected people, if you will, as we taste the resurrected blessings of Christ, destined to our own glorious resurrection. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.